You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We're going to be in a few different passages of Scripture today. Uh, If you didn't, by chance, grab a bulletin, a worship folder on your way in. There's an insert inside there. There will be for each of these weeks during the month of December. Uh, It has the lyrics of the Christmas carol that we're looking at on one side and then the Scripture passages on the other. That might be particularly helpful today because we're going to look at three uh, different passages. So um, if maybe some folks could help distribute those if if you need them or if you want to sneak back there really quickly and grab one, totally fine. Uh, The first place will be is the Gospel of Luke. Uh, chapter 2, so you can make your way there at least um, as a start. This Advent, we're, we're doing a series that we're calling Christ of the Carols, uh, and I mentioned this last week, we're inclined to hear and to sing Christmas songs without really considering the incredible truths that they contain. The melodies, uh, the tradition, the memories that, the, that these songs invoke for many of us, all of those are, are right and good. But to sing these songs really is to proclaim and to rejoice in the story of the world, uh, the hope and the peace and the joy and the love and the good news of Jesus. So each week during the season of Advent, uh, we're going to look at a Christmas carol, the biblical truths that inspired that Christmas carol, and how a deeper knowledge of of these lyrics that we are singing uh, will grow our awe and our appreciation and our wonder of the marvelous mystery that is Jesus' incarnation. So this morning we're considering the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, This is another hymn that was written by Charles Wesley. Uh, Last week we looked at the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which he also wrote along with something like 9,000 other hymns. This hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was originally published in the year 1739, Uh, And it was written within a year after Charles Wesley first became a Christian. So as one author put it, the inspiration of his newly made contact with God was still fresh. Charles Wesley uh, originally actually titled this song, Hymn for Christmas Day. And the original line, uh, the original first line began, Hark, how all the welkin rings. Now maybe you know what welkin is. I did not. Um, so I had to look up what Welkin is. Welkin means heavens or sky. Um, so it actually wasn't Charles Wesley, but the famous preacher George Whitfield, uh, who a few years later in 1753 uh, changed the first line to what it is today, which then became the title that most people, including myself, know this song by. Um, so unless Welkin is like a part of your everyday language and lingo, you can thank, you can thank George Whitfield for, for making that change some years after. Where some Christmas hymns uh, focus on a particular aspect of Jesus' birth, this hymn is really more comprehensive. Uh, It covers Jesus' nature, that he's fully God and fully man, his birth, uh, his ministry, and his saving work. And as I'm sure you'll hear in just a moment, uh, this song is saturated in Scripture. Saturated in Scripture. As the the Psalter Hymnal Handbook, which is a resource you might not have known existed, the Psalter Hymnal Handbook puts it, the focus shifts rapidly from angels to us to nations, and the text's strength may not lie so much in any orderly sequence of thought, but in its use of Scripture to teach its theology. That teaching surely produces in us a childlike response of faith. We too can sing, Glory to the Newborn King. 
So let me first uh, read the lyrics uh, of this song. I'm going to grab the bulletin of mine that I forgot to grab earlier. You can follow along with me on that one side of the, thank you, insert. Mine is colorfully decorated by one of my daughters in blue crayon. So hopefully you'll still be able to read all these lyrics. Uh, this is the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. That, that line is the refrain. It's repeated at the end of each of the verses. Second verse. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And then the third. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And it concludes, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. I'll summarize this hymn by saying it's about three things, broadly speaking the heavenly heralds, the servant sovereign, and the subversive savior. The heavenly heralds, the servant sovereign, and the subversive savior. So though there's some overlap, each stanza, each verse in this song is primarily about one of those things. Uh, So we're going to spend a few minutes in three different texts from scripture this morning. And these are texts from which Charles Wesley borrowed directly uh, as he wrote, the lyrics of this song. So before we delve into the first one, let me first just pray for our time together in the Word of God this morning. Would you pray with me? Creator God, remind us this morning that the darkness of ignorance and doubt because of Jesus cannot overcome your life-giving Word. May your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, now awaken us to the hearing and the living of this radiant truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first up, the the opening stanza is about the heavenly heralds. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. If you're following along in your Bible, it's page 857. But listen now with open ears to this book that we love. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is God's word. Throughout scripture, uh, angels play uh, a few different roles. 
Uh, They are worshipers around the throne of God. They are warriors that fight God's battles. But primarily, when we see angels in Scripture, they are messengers. They appear to people in key moments to speak on God's behalf, to make promises, to remind of promises, to proclaim something new. In other words, angels are heralds. It's not a word or a concept we use a whole lot in our present day, but a herald is an official messenger who brings news. Before the the internet or broadcast journalism or telephones, the the vast majority of human history, in other words, this was how uh, news traveled. Heralds would ride or run from one place to another. And for all the benefits of technology, for all the benefits of mass communication in the last 50 to 100 years, and especially the last maybe 20 or 30 even, uh, we've lost something really important in all that. And that is the personal ownership and the joy of receiving and proclaiming good news. So when news traveled via heralds, person to person like this, you waited and you watched for those heralds. You strained your eyes and you strained your ears. And when they spoke, you stopped and you listened. And when you received that news, you then immediately turned around and you did something with it. You, you became a herald yourself. Other people didn't know that news. They hadn't been able to access that information and they needed to know it. And so you took that role upon yourself. With 24-7 news cycles, with, with social media, there's not really that sense anymore of personal ownership and joy. We, or at least I, just assume that, that everyone already knows the news, or that if they don't know it right now, in about three minutes they will from something else. And because I feel so little ownership to pass it on, I find myself not really straining or caring to listen either. Why bother, is my thought. I'm not really integral to, to the process here. It doesn't feel like actually it's news for me, something that I'm supposed to do something with myself. It just feels like news in general that kind of exists out there ambiguously. And that spurs laziness, that spurs passivity. Consider the difference then in Luke chapter 2, this moment that Charles Wesley captures in the first stanza of this song. The shepherds are out in the field with their flock at night. And these, uh, these shepherds, these were not the prominent and well-to-do people of the first century society. Heralds would usually run first to the, to the prominent people, the people deemed important by social standards. But an angel, shining with the glory of the Lord, the bright light that surrounds the presence of God himself, appears to shepherds. And the shepherds, as we read, are understandably filled with fear. In the Bible, when human beings encounter anything of the glory of God, they're immediately overwhelmed with how imperfect and how unholy they are by comparison. The prophet Isaiah summed it up really well in Isaiah chapter 6. He has this vision of the throne of God, and upon seeing that, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so these shepherds, when this angel appears to them and the glory of the Lord is shining around him, these shepherds are thinking, well, that's it, we're dead. We're dead. But the angel says, oh, shepherds, you have that so backward. You were dead. You and the world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, consumed by war instead of peace. 
subject to judgment instead of mercy at enmity with God. But I bring you good news of great joy for you and for all people. There will now be peace on earth. There will be mercy mild. God and sinners will now be reconciled, as the song puts it. How so? Verse 11 of Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in Bethlehem, the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are packed into that last phrase three titles of Jesus. Savior, Christ, and Lord. So Savior, the rescuer, the deliverer. Christ, which is not Jesus' last name, as it sometimes can sound like because we use it together. It's not his last name, it's his title. Christ means Messiah, it means the anointed one. And the people of Israel have, had long been anticipating an anointed one who would show up and deliver them and save them. But that third title, Lord, means that this is God himself. So what is the good news of great joy? In short, that God himself is the anointed one who has come to save his people. And as the only fitting exclamation point for news that incredible, the one angel is then joined by thousands and thousands more, we don't even know how many, who together proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Through this baby, God will make peace with his people. He will put away that enmity, that hostility that we created as humanity in our rebellion against him. And so here's the question I have for you this morning. Have you in your own life become so overwhelmed with information and with news and with stimuli that you've lost your joy and your personal ownership of good news? Have you been so formed into a passive consumer of news in general that the birth and the incarnation and the salvation of Jesus just feels like another line on your newsfeed, another notification that pops up on your phone, another email in your inbox? If so, Charles Wesley's exhortation in this song is to wake up. Wake up. Joyful all you nations rise. That's us. We, because of the work of Jesus, are now included among the nations that are saved and rescued by the work of Jesus. And Charles Wesley's saying, rise up, receive this good news because it changes absolutely everything about your life. And then join the triumph of the skies. Not only receive this news, but do something with it. Join with these thousands of angels proclaiming glory to God and peace on earth because God himself has come into the world to rescue his people. The second stanza is about the servant sovereign. The servant sovereign. Uh, if you can turn in your Bible or follow along in that insert to Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. It's page uh, 980 if you're using the, the black hardcover Bible. But listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Many scholars 
uh, think this passage is a hymn uh, that the early church used, and they sometimes refer to it as the hymn of Christ. Uh, It's packed with theology about Jesus' existence with God before his birth, about his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But it's also written, which is less obvious to us because we don't speak the original languages of Scripture, most of us. It's also written in poetic form. And so along with the Psalms, along with texts like Genesis 1, texts like these are a beautiful biblical example of how hymns, songs, poetry, unite our minds with our hearts. We sing truth. We engage both our intellect and our emotions, our affections, in the worship of God. And this hymn of Christ in Philippians 2 was Wesley's main biblical inspiration for the second stanza of his song. So he writes, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Paul here writes in verse 6 that before he came into the world, Jesus was in the form of God. He was completely equal with God, coexisting and reigning with God and with the Holy Spirit from eternity past. But though equal with God, Late in time, or as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, he became the offspring of the virgin's womb. Jesus emptied himself, not not becoming in any way less than God, but taking on flesh, taking on the, the flesh and the form of a servant and giving up the rights and the privileges and the entitlements that are rightfully his. So Jesus is the servant sovereign. He is the eternal king of the universe. He's the sovereign. And yet, he comes into the world as a servant. And this humility, this service of Jesus' incarnation is what sets Jesus and really the Christian faith apart from all other faiths and religions and so-called gods in the world. In other religions, in the, the economy of the kingdoms and governments of the world, The people always serve the sovereign. That's how it works. But in Christianity, in the the good news of the gospel, the sovereign serves the people. Jesus comes into the world, he writes, he says in, in Mark's gospel, it's recorded for us, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as Paul writes here in this text, not only humbling himself to be born, but humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, which is the most undignified death that humanity could ever invent. Even more incredible, as Wesley writes in his song, he is pleased to do this. Pleased as man with men to dwell. No one forces Jesus to do this. As John's gospel records him saying, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And praise God, he did exactly both of those things. Few things will increase your awe of the incarnation than than when you understand that it was Jesus' joy to do that. That it was his pleasure to humble himself and to serve you and to serve me. Who among us feels worthy of that? Who among us isn't made somewhat or a lot uncomfortable by that thought? It turns the world on its head. It upends everything we think about the way things should work. Jesus' humility, the more we think about it, it will humble us. 
It will shatter all of our attempts to, to earn something from God, to try to make ourselves worthy of him, to work hard enough or be smart enough or to do enough good to merit his favor. The ultimate sovereign became the ultimate servant and showed us that that is the way that the kingdom of God works. And as Paul writes, this is not only our salvation, it's also our example to follow. He started by saying in verse 5 there, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So whatever we think we're entitled to, whatever kind of service we think that we are owed by other people, that will be exposed as folly. That will crumble in an instant at the smallest glimpse of Jesus Christ. He was entitled to everything. He made himself nothing. What are we entitled to? However we might answer that question, I think we'd agree, infinitely less than Jesus. What are we entitled to? Infinitely less than Jesus. And so, in response to that, let us take the low place. Let us take the place of a servant, looking to the interests of others and not our own interests. Because in the kingdom of God, pleasure and joy are found not by being served, but by becoming a servant. The third and final stanza of Wesley's hymn is about the subversive Savior. Subversive Savior. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. This, this text is actually on the last page of the Old Testament, uh, page 803, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles. But listen now with open ears to this book that we love. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they, shall, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. These are among the, the last words of the Old Testament, some of the very last authoritative words that we have revealed from God to his people before a 400-year silence. But in these words, via the prophet Malachi, as you heard, a day is foretold when just like the sun in our solar system rises and drives out the darkness, a sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, a metaphorical way of talking about the rays of the sun. Throughout Scripture, the, the sudden appearance of God is sometimes likened and pictured as the, the light of the sun. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, The sun shall be no more your light by day, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Or Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Or Revelation 21, 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Which is the way they're referring to Jesus in the book of Revelation. So it's Jesus who fulfills this prophecy from Malachi. As John chapter 8 records, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Wesley writes in this third stanza, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. 
light and life to all he brings because Jesus said, we will have the light of life in him. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Here's what I'd invite you to consider this morning. In this and many other Christmas songs, you will often hear the word peace. It's the theme of the second Advent candle, as you heard Katie share with us a little while ago this morning. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Peace on earth and mercy mild, as we sing in this song. And truly, in Jesus, there's peace. But unless we root our understanding of peace, of what peace is, in the word of God, we'll end up with, and I think this is true of many people in our cultural moment, we'll end up with this watered-down, shallow misunderstanding of what peace is and what peace requires. According to Malachi chapter 4, the day that the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in his wings is also a day when the arrogant and the evildoers become stubble. It's a stark picture in Malachi. When they will be tread down and become ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous. So the peace that Jesus brings, the Son of Righteousness brings, is far from this general sense of calm or happy feelings, as it sometimes is thought of in our, in our culture. Peace without conflict, peace without violence against evil and wickedness. This is an illusion. It's an illusion of privileged and sheltered people who have never come face to face with real evil and real injustice. As the Yale theologian and survivor of the wars between Croatia and Serbia, Miroslav Volf, once quipped, it takes the quiet of a suburb to make that conclusion. Peace will come in one of two ways. God and sinners will be reconciled through the work of Jesus, but for all who persist in arrogance and evil, that rebellion will once and for all be put down. So we sing about the mildness of the incarnation. And in one sense, it is mild. Jesus' humility, the laying aside of his rights and privileges and entering in not as a triumphant king but as a humble baby is why we can sing rightfully about mercy mild and a silent night. But what is mild in humility is mighty in its power to save, to give us second birth, to raise us, to heal us to the point that we no more may die. And what is mild in humility is violent in its assault against Satan's sin and death and against those who would persist as the agents of those things in the world. And so this is the subversive power of Jesus' incarnation. God's declaration of war against the serpent in the Garden of Eden now has flesh and blood and hands and feet. And Christmas, think of it this way, Christmas is the beachhead. It is the army landing on the shores of any enemy-occupied territory to put down the rebellion once and for all and procure peace. In some ways, we've covered a lot, we've covered a lot this morning. In some ways, you've kind of gotten a three sermons for the price of one kind of day. But that's the power of a hymn that's so saturated with Scripture. There's at least a dozen other sermons in this song. And when written poetically and when put to music, it engages not only our minds, but our deepest affections, our longings to see the world be made right, our longings to see death die, to see healing come, to, to experience real peace. You may not have realized that to sing this song 
is to celebrate and to proclaim all of that. And if that's the case for you, that's okay. For any of you who are here this morning who aren't Christians and who are considering what you believe, it's so important that you hear that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just an example for us to follow. That that Christmas is not just about creating a a general sense of well-being for humanity. It's really important that you hear this morning that there is subversive power in the incarnation of Jesus, power to rescue, power to take back from Satan's sin and death this world which belongs to God. And just as the herald angels appear to the shepherds, this good news of great joy is held out to you. And that's true in whatever condition you find yourself this morning, esteemed and respected by society or not, or anywhere in between. You can be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus and his work. It was Jesus' pleasure, it was his joy to enter into the world and dwell among rebels like me and like you to make peace through his death on a cross. And so if that's you this morning, I would implore you, receive this good news. Receive this good news. Do something with this good news. Be reconciled to God through Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. For those of you here this morning who are Christians, Let these scripture-saturated stanzas move you to respond faithfully as the people of God in this time and place. Because Jesus entered into this world, as each of the three stanzas points out one of these things, there is news to own, service to model, and peace to procure. There's news to own. The gospel is not just information to passively consume. So if you find yourself doing that, wake up. Joyful, all you nations rise and join the triumph of the skies. Receive this news, proclaim it, own it as if it actually matters to you and to the world because nothing matters more. There's service to model because you have been saved by the humility of the king of the universe. Give up your rights, give up your entitlements, take the low place of service and do that over and over again. And from that low place, watch the saving power of God come to bear in and through your life. And there is peace to pursue. Be humble in service, but fight for peace. Remember that Christmas is Jesus' subversive assault on Satan, sin, and death. And in response, push back what remains dark in this world. The sin that persists in your own life the sin that is consuming and destroying the people that you know and love, the injustice and the oppression that you observe around you. Pray and act and reject forever the ridiculous notion that peace can ever come without conflict, without violence and assault against what is evil. Be mild, men and women, but be mighty. Be mild, but be violent against the darkness. And this Christmas... Let it be said of us that there are none more invested in proclaiming the good news, none more humble in service, and none more threatening to the darkness than we who have been reconciled by Jesus Christ. Glory to our newborn King. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.